Hello, everyone. I am so happy to have you all back for another episode of This Could Have Been an Email. Today, we have an amazing guest. We have Dr. Maria Urso. She's a senior director of medical affairs at a biotech company, and we actually met through my partner at a company <laughs> event. And I think, Maria, you introduced yourself and I just couldn't stop asking you questions. I was incredibly forward and said, oh my gosh, you have to be on my podcast with Alex. <laughs> and it took off from there. So today we're kind of going to jump into your experience and your career progression through a more non-traditional approach. And then going to focus on your theme of endurance, your endurance mentality and what that means for you both physically and mentally and how those two things tie together, which I think a lot of our listeners slash every human being that exists could identify with. So welcome, Maria. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. And thank you, Nicole. I felt the same way the night we met. It was like instant click. I almost felt bad because it was at a company event and you were there <laughs> as, as a plus one. And I remember I sort of like turned my back on everyone I was with and you and I were just chit-chatting away like, I was like, this conversation must go on. And it was just sweet. I said, well, we have a podcast. We could keep talking and record it. But oh, 100%. Yeah. And I, I love it, it, doing this too. I just feel like yeah. there's so many things that we talk about one-on-one -on -one when we're excited and inspired by something. And it's like, oh, man, if only that was recorded to be able to relive it's, it. It's so true. I think we've definitely felt that with with kind of the sense of community, which is one of our kind of themes for this season. And it came up last season of like, even if people don't know each other, you latch onto that common experience or just like, hey, let me be inspired by you because your background is so different than mine in terms of the experiences you went through. And I love a good lady boss in any environment. And my spouse was off to the side like, she's super badass you should talk to her like this chick is in charge of a lot you should really talk to her and i was like i mean you don't have to tell me twice like i i mostly blame it on we can blame it on him because he like gave me a heads up that you were great as we were walking up to you so why don't you share a little bit about your role and what you do but i think what initially got us really connected was how you became doctor or so and your role and how you progressed through your PhD into your postdoc and what that looked like for you. Sure. Well, you know, that's so funny that that was even said to you because you never know what people are saying or what their perception of you is. And I, I had no idea that anyone perceived me as a badass. I mean, I hear it at, you know, ultra marathons and I'm just like, oh, come on, just because I ran faster than you or longer than you, like, okay, fine, <laughs> you could give me that label. but. It's, it's humbling and overly flattering to hear that someone's saying that you know, when, when you don't know what they're saying. So that's, that's absolutely. Great. So how did I end up here? Well, I definitely um, had the non-traditional career path. I, you know, if we go way back, I've always been fascinated by the human body. My father was a doctor and from when I was the teeniest little thing, we always joked how I was going to be a doctor with him and we we're going to work together and he was going to be my boss and, you know, we'd be doctors together. That's so sweet. Yeah, it was great. But I, I was also a bit, you know, he had a term he used for me, which was spooski. 
Um, you know, as his polar. I'm sorry. Star. Repeat that. What What is this term? <laughs> Spusty. No, I've heard that it's not quite the most like flattering term. <laughs> but the way he used it was because I was the queen of. But why? But why? And it wasn't just I was on the receiving end. I'd also make up my own answers to questions. Like I'd use my own kind of like logic to work. I was convinced, and I even told my kindergarten teacher that she was wrong when she was telling us what a quarter, how much a quarter was worth, a nickel was worth, and a dime was worth. Because I remember a nickel being bigger than a dime. And I said, no, the bigger something is means it's worth less. So a quarter is not worth more than a dime. And so, yeah. yeah, not only did I ask a lot of questions, but then I would like take whatever little information I had and make it like 10 leaps forward. And, <laughs> and I, I can imagine very vividly baby Maria being like, I'm so sorry. And in the nicest way possible, you're wrong. And you've not understood basic physics and mathematics, your entire life, kindergarten teacher. Yeah. I'm living for it. Or even just going to the grocery store and paying 35 cents for an ice cream cone. You got ripped off because you used the wrong money. <laughs> so yeah, that would, yeah. I, and I look back and I was like, wow, imagine if social media was around then because I was probably a big fat pain in the neck. And so anyway, I went to college thinking I was going to be a doctor and I just, you know, this is, it sounds so silly, but I, I've been watching. Have you seen New Amsterdam? Have, did you watch that series? No, I need to catch up on it. I have I have not watched it, but I know friends who have. It, it's good. And I've been using that as my unplugged show in the evening. But when I was in college, ER was the show that everyone was mm -hmm. watching. And so my freshman year, we'd all gather together on Thursday night in front of the TV because you only get one episode a night. You don't get to stream them all back to back. And I remember watching that albeit it was fiction, I still said, I don't think I can be a good doctor. I don't mm. see myself making life or death decisions so quickly and then going home at night and putting my head on the pillow and sleeping. I, I mm -hmm. would ruminate over how could I have done it better? What could I have done differently? And I, I just wasn't, I, I wasn't good enough at letting go and moving on to the next thing. Yeah. And so yeah, I was, I was in that kind of crisis mode in college, but then I was only like a freshman and a sophomore and I explored different things. And I've always been into sport and athletics. And so I said, oh, maybe I'll be a physical therapist. And that kind of comes mm -hmm. together. And I took that track and my junior year in college, I was working in a physical therapy office. You had to get your time, your internship. But I was also, I needed one credit. So I was working in the electron microscope lab and this may sound incredibly boring to you, but I was measuring mitochondria under the electron microscope. And I would go in on Saturdays. I was working on a grad student's master's project and I would just go in on Saturdays and just keep measuring these mitochondria. I found nothing more beautiful than being inside skeletal muscle cell measuring organelles. I just thought that I had reached career Mecca right then and there. I mean, I find that both incredibly dorky and amazingly endearing. And also all the listeners of our generation who I feel like remember that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell are really rooting for you right now because we remember that from biology, damn right? it. And the mitochondria still is the powerhouse of the cell. And we inherited from our moms. So remember that one. That's a great thing. Ugh. 
never knew that. Yeah. Oh my God. We do. And even better. I loved it. It was a dark, dark room, of course, because you're in the electron microscope. Right. And I brought in this like double cassette player because this was like CDs were just starting. It had a CD on the top, but it was not so good. And I did sure. myself mixtapes to listen to while I was measuring the mitochondria. So really dating myself. You gotta get you gotta get in the mitochondria mood with that mixtape. Yeah, so it was good. So I did that and I just decided I, I love the research. I love oh, doing cool. science and being at the bench top, being a bench top mm-hmm. scientist was and it it moved from there. So they were trying to figure out how to make a, a buffer, which is really the most basic thing. But I was working in a lab that really wasn't designed so much to do that. We received the skeletal muscle. It would already be fixed. It would be ready for the microscope. And so I went back for my master's and that's what I did was I set up a wet lab to do a lot of this research and I loved it. And I was presenting at a, a conference, a small conference. I had a poster there and this woman her name was priscilla clarkson and and that's important so she was my mentor all throughout grad school and she was about five foot nothing tiny woman and she was the powerhouse of skeletal muscle yeah she really was and a lady in science like in technical science which is amazing exactly like gatorade would use her on their advisory board because of the research she did yeah, and this was when creatine first came out for people were taking it for bodybuilding. And she said, I don't know about all these guys lifting weights and that big muscle stuff, but we need this for people with cancer cachexia who are losing muscle. We need this for people with HIV AIDS who are losing muscle. We need this for older people who experience muscle atrophy. So she built a lab that looked at supplement research, but also looked at skeletal muscle damage. And the, the whole basis of that was she was a pioneer in understanding skeletal muscles. So, wow. Yeah, it, it was cool. She was definitely inspired. So she just found you at a fair and was like, Maria, come on, let's go make you a lady doctor and we'll go solve the world's problems together. Yeah, pretty much. That's how it went, but, but not quite so elegant. <laughs> <laughs> it was more, so what are your plans after this? And I said, I, I think I'm going to go for my PhD maybe. And the worst part of all this was I really hadn't decided I wanted to go for my PhD. And I was there with a colleague who was obsessed with Dr. Priscilla Clarkson and went to this conference with things highlighted in her papers that she was going to have this conversation. And, but the difference was I had a poster and she did it. She went there to network. I went there to network, but with something in my hand and just to put mm. this into perspective, remember, I was measuring mitochondria in a lab that never existed before, and I didn't have like that deep, deep scientific layer. I was presenting to her a poster that instead of said assess, it said acids. You know, like no one even spell checked my work for me. So I didn't really go there with an A game in mind. I didn't have a five year plan. I had a poster that said acids. You know, it wasn't like fancy and she talked to me and we had a really nice conversation. And so I think that was one of those being in the right place at the right time and Mm. just being myself. I I wasn't preparing to impress this woman. I was just there to be myself and and be proud of kind of the work I did. I, I think that's taking that out and putting it in like 
ongoing application too. I actually love my favorite type of networking is when they are like around specific affinity groups or interest groups for lack of a better term. So I loved like younger, I was, I was early in my career and I thought, I hate networking. This is so awkward. What are we going to talk about? I don't know you from Adam. And then I went to my first very technical conference for this email marketing platform called Silverpop. And I literally spent the whole time nerding out about how I had used web-based forms to help update like a custom preference center and then feeding that to my CRM. And I made so many connections. And to your point, like I just let my nerd show a little bit and like the passion for the content and you get that general connection, that genuine connection. Mm -hmm. I think that that's such a good lesson to take too of like, let your, let your nerd show a little bit, let it show how excited you were to measure mitochondria and write asses on your poster board and it'll still happen. <laughs> it'll still be there. Yeah, it, it, I completely agree. It's just showing up with that fire in your belly and people see that. I, I look for that. It, when I interview people, one of the things I say, they just didn't have a fire in their belly. I didn't hear the excitement. Like if you are interviewing for a role to, to be excited for it, to be excited for what you do, and I use that as my own litmus test. Am mm-hmm. I, is this a chore for me or am I genuinely excited mm-hmm. and passionate and I can't turn my brain off from thinking about it level. So, so yeah, so I did end up joining her lab. It was a, a very rough first year. I, again, didn't come from this traditional, they call it your scientific pedigree. So I, I didn't have this scientific pedigree, but a lot of my colleagues at the time, they did, they did, they came knowing how to write scientifically. They knew all the different lab skills that I was still trying to teach myself and learn and figure mm-hmm. out. And so I'd say I started behind my peers, which was tough at first. But again, I think those are the types of things that build resilience. Nothing was expected. I I really struggled because I, all through high school, in addition to wanting to be a doctor, I loved English. I loved a good novel. I love writing. Mm-hmm. I journaled. I always kept, I think I go back and I read my diary. I'm like, none of this stuff happened. Like I was writing <laughs> it. I was writing it in the hopes that someone would find it and be like, whoa, this girl's got an amazing life. <laughs> so yeah. And, and that's kind of how I wrote science the first year. And, and that's not how they want to hear science written. <laughs> science writing is awful. It's it, it beautiful really when it's done well, and I, and I say yeah. it's elegant. And so Dr. Clarkson, Priscilla Clarkson first had to undo my, as she called it, my flowery writing tied with balloons and, and tell me, Maria, just write the facts. And so I, mm. I really had to learn that you're just speaking to facts. It is what it is, which is irony. So I'm going to fast forward to the fact that I learned a lot. I figured I went to lab camp to learn how to do benchtop science. I took our lab to a new level because we started to do, this was when Craig Venter was figuring out the human genome. And so we were doing the very first work with SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphisms. And those are the alterations in your gene that might cause a protein to act differently. So what we were looking again, I was in a skeletal muscle lab. So 
more so, you know, there's people who go to the gym every single day, day in, day out, and they just don't become heavily muscled. And then there's other people that are like, what the heck? You looked at the weights and, and you're, you're buff. Like, what's causing that? And so now we know you see it in a lot of Olympic athletes. We find cert certain these uh, genotypes. So the actin-3 genotype is one of them where you inherit a polymorphism that causes you to be maybe a high sprinter or a power lifter or an endurance athlete. And so we were researching that. And so I went to lab camp to learn how to do all different things with RNA and DNA. And my goal was to understand how skeletal muscle wasted away in response to different perturbations. If you unload a muscle, just like space flight, we're looking doing a lot with astronauts because they lose muscle when they're up there. It's very different than if you break a leg and you, you don't get to bend it and you're in a cast, which is also different than if you have a spinal cord injury and now the nerve's not mm -hmm. talking to the muscle. And so my work was to try and figure out the different kind of molecular signatures of that. Wow. Again, and the same thing. And there he was again at another conference with another poster. And I couldn't figure out how to make an antibody. It wasn't available to look at one of these mm -hmm. proteins. And I ran into, again, this fire in the belly, super fun scientist who asked me how I was going to finish my dissertation work if there was no antibody. And he invited me to come work in his lab over Christmas break. And I got to his lab and I saw people in uniform, like military uniform, and it was on the U.S. Army base, which is up in Natick, Massachusetts. And that's where, if anyone is familiar with the military, that's where um, a lot of the things they'll say, Natick tried and tested. And so they mm -hmm. make everything there from the Kevlar helmets oh. to the MREs, so the meals ready to eat, different clothing. There's a clothing textile factory there. So, you know, how could it be? the best material to be worn in the heat? How can it be the best thing to be worn in the cold? Again, if there's going to be like blast injury or blunt force trauma, what type of materials are the best? And then from a nutrition perspective, if you send soldiers out on these five days sustained operation procedure at altitude, what do they need? There were altitude chambers there, there were dehydration chambers, there were cold chambers, there's everything you could imagine. And I saw people in uniform and I, I always, was kind of like a GI Jane. I just loved the military since I was small. And I asked, I said, how do these people get here to do research and they're in uniform? And he said, well, you can join the army and be a military scientist. They have these roles. They're called uh, bio biochemists, 71 Bravos. So was, you were like, yeah, I think I'll do that. <laughs> yep. Everyone was interviewing for postdocs. And I actually was interviewing at some fantastic laboratories. I had done some great work. I, again, worked with Dr. Clarks and I learned how to write. I was publishing my work. I was having fun with it. I enjoyed what I did. I tried to speak at every conference. And so I had some wonderful opportunities for postdocs. And I know I broke not only her heart, but my mother's heart. And I said, so I know I went to school for 10 years and now I'm going to join the army. <laughs> which, which just for our listeners, like it, the most recent research I could find on this from a reliable source was not recent enough. It feels like more research needs to be done. But the number I found was 80% of postdocs are done in higher education spaces, like at the university, staying at, or a scientific lab. Like not only did you break Dr. Clarston's and your mother's hearts, but you also really bucked the trend in a big way. Like this is not a traditional path 
when you said you did your postdoc in the military, I was like, wait, what? Tell me more. Because I didn't even know that was a thing. Yes. So I, I, if I heard the word career suicide 10 times, I heard it 20 times. Oh. I reached out to every mentor I ever had and not one person supported me. And I remember I hit the point where when I declined one of my postdoc offers, I actually lied. I flat out lied the reason I wasn't joining. And I, I still, to this day, I'm not happy that I, I used that lie. You couldn't own it. Yeah. Yeah. But I lied. It's hard. Yeah. To give the reason. Because everyone kept saying, you're making a terrible decision. This is career suicide. But here's the thing that I knew, Nicole. And this is what I think is such an important lesson. I knew that I had been in several areas where I had to figure something out because the tools weren't available to me, whether it was in the first lab I was ever in where, or the second lab in in Priscilla Clarkson's lab where they were measuring stuff in the blood. I was now taking muscle biopsies from humans with spinal cord injuries and figuring out how to measure their DNA, RNA, and protein with antibodies that weren't even made yet. And I made the antibodies. So I was not this rip-roaring biochemist who was just you know, running around with pipettes and stringing nucleotides <laughs> together. That, that was not Maria. I was just figuring it out. And so being in that position where I had to figure it out and nobody had the answers, they were, I was just headstrong, like I'm going to figure this out that helped a lot with this decision is every time someone said career suicide i said no and i had that fire i had that fire in my belly this is what i want to do this is when i look back on my life i'm going to say okay i did a postdoc like everybody else or i joined the army and i did research for the military and i don't regret that for a single second that's what i did i mean what a cool like on so many levels just i can't think of a better mission, whether or not you agree on any war that we've ever deployed to. I know I've had people in my life who have been in the military. I've dated someone in the military who trained Afghani and Iraqi soldiers. It just seems like such an amazing calling to be able to on, I guess on the surface, you had this other kind of thing of like, oh, this is career suicide. But on this other piece, you got to do this cutting edge research where you had to figure it out. And you were in this really fantastic aim of helping soldiers with spinal cord injuries. Or that was the aim, which also, by the way, trickles down to the average American, right? Like we all have GPSs because of the military. Mm -hmm. We all have a lot of things because of the military. And so I guess the interesting question I've always kind of thought but haven't asked you directly is like, what was it like being a woman who like you had to look in the face, there wasn't time for really imposter syndrome or maybe there was, but like, what was it like being a woman in a very male dominated space, being the military and being science? Like at any point, did it actually get turned on its head where you were all like, we're all equal because we all are trying to figure out this incredible unknown? Or did you still feel any of those themes while you were doing your postdoc? So I always felt those themes and and I still feel those themes, especially being in the sciences. And even now in industry, it's still, 
I'm the first one to go and look at conferences if we're going to sponsor them and say, do they have at least 33% females speaking at them, whether it's a scientific conference or a medical conference. And 33% is really not even a good number. And I'm sure too about the leaky pipeline where once we hit certain levels, it's the drop off is so extreme. It's so extreme. And I wish I had an answer that was able that we could apply to everybody. But if I walked into the military as a captain because of my degree, so you get an automatic rank as a captain and I had to go to officer basic. Now I'm an officer basic with first lieutenant, second lieutenants, captains, and some people who walked in with a major because they were, had already, maybe they finished medical school or maybe they had some ROTC in their history. And the other half of my class were former enlisted and they had risen through the ranks and now they were moving over to be an officer. There were 300 people in my class. I showed up in the middle of September. I, someone took me shopping by thank goodness to them in the middle of Texas. I didn't even know how to put my uniform on the first day. And what I was told before I went was Maria, we know you, don't you dare volunteer for anything. <laughs> back. There's you're in a class of 300. There's going to be 250 people there that have military experience. Let them run the show. You just fall in and follow along. And that was my big plan. But as I also really like to exercise and train and I was training for a half Ironman at the time. And so we finished the first day of PT, which I, I this is going to sound so snobby, but it was lame. <laughs> it was just, that was PT. I woke up at 4am for this. And we just stretched and we touched our toes and we like did a couple of sprints or whatever. So then I went out. I'm like, That's my be- speed. I would have been down for that. <laughs> I was, remember, I thought I was going to be G.I. Jane. I thought. For sure. Yeah, for I sure. thought there was going to be pouring rain and someone's going to shave my head. And I was going to be doing <laughs> pouring and push-ups with like, you know, snakes below me. And A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, we did like gentle yoga day one. And so I went back to the barracks and we had two hours before our first report. And so I'm like, oh, good. I can go for a run. Mind you, it's September, it's Texas, it's hot. And I swear I didn't volunteer for anything, but first sergeant sees Maria running around post. So we get to our very, our second thing. So our first thing was our introductory PT. And we get there and I hear Captain Urso post. And so I go to the front. I'm like, oh, maybe I forgot something or they're changing my room in the barracks or something. And he says, I saw you running at you know, oh, 0600 hours this morning after PT. So now I'm in trouble. Now I'm like, oh shoot, I really messed up. Like I'm totally in trouble. And he said, I, it was that you? And now, there's 299 people behind me oh and gosh. I'm sweating. I'm, when the hot Texas sun, you're in your beret, I'm sweating like uh, horribly. And he says, you, and I said, yes, sir, that was me. I apologize. Don't you ever apologize. That shows discipline. That shows hard work and goes on. Yeah, all these great things. And as soon as the corners of my mouth started to lift into a smile, he goes, and that shows that you would be an excellent class leader for these first two weeks. (laughs) This is me who didn't even know how to get dressed that morning. Like I didn't know where the the Um... themes go. And I I said, I swear I wasn't going to volunteer for anything. 
so here's what happens. I get put as the class leader that morning. It was a total disaster. I don't know DNC. I don't know how to march people. And all I know is Hollywood studios. So I put on the whole fake it till you make it thing. And I said, yep. all right, that's it. I just got to put on my outdoor voice. I got to act like I'm in charge. Nobody's going to you know, sway me. So I get in the front of the, everybody and he's like, call everyone to order and send them here and then let them know that our PT test is, you know, at 0500 tomorrow. So I pull everyone in front and I'm like, oh, shoot. So I'm like, company. And I say it loud and I'm so strong and proud. And they all scream back and they're like, they scream right back. I'm like, this is great. And then they say platoon and then I have to come to attention. So there I go. And now I'm totally, I'm beyond confident. I was like, I got this. <laughs> my eyes closed. So I go, Ted Hood. And all of a sudden it's like a ripple and people start to come to attention. And then I hear laughing, uncontrollable laughing. And then oh, I hear no. first oh, sergeant who's like, Captain Urso, how many movies have you been watching? Ten <laughs> hut? What is ten hut? We call people to attention here. Attention. And so I am beyond mortified. I still, even when I, I tell died. the story, I have like a minor panic attack. Fast forward. So anyway, the whole day, I'm totally mortified. I'm the loser of first class. I'm like, I'm never even going to succeed. They're, they're going to send me home. They're going to be like, this, she's awful. Because how am I supposed to leave these people? Anyway, right. show up the next morning for PT. And as life is an endurance event, I've always used endurance as something just to, if I'm too tired, if I'm this, it's just help me. I not only beat that entire class during our two mile run, smoked is probably the word that I heard the most often. That's right. That's right. And it was mostly men. It was mostly men. And I wasn't young. Remember, I was 30 at this time. I was just about to be oh, 30. sure. Yes, yeah. it was about 80% males, and some of them were 19, 20, 21 years old, and I wow. beat everybody. So that right there gave me my street cred that I needed yes. in that role in life. And I feel like it's always helped me. It helped me in the military. It definitely helped me to have that physical, I can do it. I'm not just here because of my science. You already yeah. lose some points if you're in the military just because of science. But I was able to, I my marksmanship, every single thing I did in the field, I was on par with people who were lifetime soldiers. And that was very important to me. And I've always taken that role to being in a lab and being in a male-dominated field. Is I never want to be different or act different. I'll never expect anything different. I'll work myself harder. And that's also where that endurance mentality comes from is you may come in rec more recognizable than me. You may come in with like a louder, more booming, defined voice. You may come in already just by being a man that people just look to you first when you speak in the room, but I will outwork you. I will, that is my like, I will right. outwork you. And I will make sure that I turn things in early, well done, Proofread, no more asses. Bye <laughs> yeah. bye asses. Yeah. And I feel like translating that to just, it's never right. too late, like to just make sure I get that in. And I, I think that, like, I love that because it immediately makes me think of taking it out of the military space too and putting it into looking at two things. Because I want to get to the endurance side of this because you run ultra marathons, which literally, 
makes me want to cry and cheer. I, I like that would be a supreme torture for me. But the part of I think that we can all relate to is this idea that you respect your leaders most when they can also do or understand what you are doing. Right. When they roll up their sleeves, I know you and I talked about a book that we had both read called Extreme Ownership Mm -hmm. that was written by a couple of Navy SEALs. And some of the examples at the beginning of each chapter were, as someone who's never been to war, were incredibly intense, who's never been in battle. And so reading those, I was like, whoa. But it makes you realize quickly how stepping in, not having an ego and saying, I own this, not only am I going to do the hard work with you, but I'm also going to hold myself to that higher standard and show you the true servant side of leadership, which I think is really phenomenal and probably why, you know, in my experience, people don't give the name of badass when they're talking about someone unless they're also incredibly respected. And I think that's the other thing of walking the walk and not just talking the talk is I think incredibly relatable to everyone across every industry to quickly get that street cred and say, I'm going to do this along with you. This isn't going to be me looking from above in a tower. It's going to be us doing it together. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Accountability is, and you know where we are now, you've, you've probably heard this at exact sciences. That's a, one of our core values is accountability. It's, I feel like that should be every company's core value Agreed. is Agreed. to own it. And I can't, I've, practice this long enough that no matter what someone comes to me with, I I will never point the finger and say it's their fault. If they're coming to me, there's some reason why they think I own why something didn't go right. right. And so I think accountability spot on what you said and rolling up your sleeves. And I, I got through grad school, I, I slung drinks as a bartender on the side and I've worked in restaurants and I never hesitated to roll up my sleeves and wash a dish if we were buried and we needed that. And it, there was no role, plus the table, take out the garbage. There was no role in a restaurant that was beneath me or below me or different than me. And even there, you, you earn that respect is people who say, Maria needs something. I know that she'll roll up her sleeves and help me. So I think they're more likely to roll up their sleeves and help you. And absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to have a, we're hoping to have a therapist on later in the season who's going to talk about the best form of self-care being boundaries. And I think that's where sometimes, like, I know I personally struggle, that I'm very similar to you in that um, it's probably not running marathons, but like, I will put in the extra time, I will put in the extra hours. And how do you set appropriate boundaries to maintain that and make it um, something that is maintainable for a long time. So I think that I'm super excited to have that guest on because I think these two things go hand in hand. They're looked at as, sometimes as opposites of like, well, I can't be this and that. And I think it's like, no, this delicate dance is that tight, tight rope walk, if you will. But I, I do want to get at your, like, clearly you are obsessed with the human body and the mechanisms that make it work. Like you love mitochondria, you've studied muscular tissue, you come from a family of medicine and you run. I think the last time we tried to set up a recording for last season, you were like, oh, I'm in London for a marathon. And I was like, what is your life? This sounds amazing. So like, talk to us about 
how, how does one just get into marathons or like maybe some highlights of what you do and, and how frequently um, you run, but more importantly, like how that affects your mental state, your ability and capacity to show up every day and be your best? Yeah. So, you know, running again, that was something I did do with my father since I was small and it's just something I've always kept. I enjoy it. And so I, I truly like running. I never say I have to run. And I know that this is one of the, the things we say when the self care is I get to run. I really do get to run. I get mm -hmm. to run pain-free, injury-free, healthy, and I feel good. And I also get up early and that is my protected time in the morning. And yeah. I ran, I, I didn't run competitively in high school. I just ran because I enjoyed it. And I think that helped a lot that I'm still running now because I enjoy yeah. it. I, I just became fast. And, and so I, I've run Boston 10 times now. I, I know I was on the all army marathon team. So I tried out and I ran with the army, which was a really cool experience to That's do that. So cool. Yeah, it was awesome. And so oh I ran fast for a, a number of years and it just hit the point where running fast and showing up for races and people were expecting times of you. It was starting to take a lot of the joy of it away from me. Yeah. I still loved running. And right around COVID, I ran into someone who said, can you pace a race for us? Can you pace a marathon? I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to do that. I can run even splits for it. And so I started locally pacing marathons. And what it is, is you just go and you run a consistent split. And again, you're kind of a caretaker, which I love too. You're a cheerleader. I'm a great cheerleader because I love what I'm doing. Like, this is so fun. So uh, you just have a team, you hold a sign or you wear a flag. And so then that's what you do. And I, I, I love so you're that. running. So you're running with other people who are actually running the whole race and you're taking a leg with them? No, I run the whole race. So I start the race with them. They meet me before the race and they say, okay, my goal is to run a, um, you know, three hour and 35 minute marathon. And I say, okay. This is my plan. I'm going to run like an eight minute mile. We'll probably have to do some 755s. If the course markers are a little bit off, I might have to speed us up a little bit. I'm going to point out water stations. Well, you know, this, that we're going to, we, we got this. It's you and me for the next three hours and 35 minutes. We are a team. And so, so you're like a marathon Sherpa. Yeah, like, much, yeah. Wow. I that's I awesome. Snacks in my pockets and all. And can keep up with them. <laughs> And, and so this is what's great is I had to become X good that I could yeah. run, you know, like a three hour and change marathon so that I could run a three hour and 35 minute marathon, like chill, like have a conversation, have fun, dance when the music's good. So I, I've done this over the, the years. And so I, I had the opportunity to do London in the fall and then because it was an off cycle year because of COVID. And then I just got invited back. I just did it again in April. But to make sure I stay in shape for marathoning, because it's really hard to show up for a marathon and not want to race it. So I do ultras now. So we're now I'm running extra distances. And again, I bring my army background, my favorite thing about the military. And so I do a lot of off-road trail ultras. I think before you and I went, I was doing my first point-to-point -point 100K, where you start on one side of Florida and you go to the other. It's called the Lake to Ocean. And, and you're traversing like through waist high water. There's no like cups and goos handed out along the way. Like you can have crew meet you at two or three points, 
but yeah, there's snakes and wild hogs and what? <laughs> yeah, but the best part is you're covered in mud by the end. You, they, I mean, there's one part where you're like climbing up a ladder and going through the woods and yeah, it's awesome. It's totally your awesome. love of this is clear because you just said the best part is, and I was like, I'm still like the golf cart picks you up. No, is that the best? Actually, at the end, you finish at the ocean and you jump in the ocean. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and, yeah. And you're covered in mud from head to toe, and it's hot. We're in Florida, so yeah, that's yeah. a fun one. So now I do those to stay in shape to do it. But I find that when I'm doing the ultras, I don't listen to music. And people are like, aren't you bored running for six, seven, eight hours with no music? I said, no, I have so much to think about, so mm. much to think about. And even when I'm training, I just, there's, I re, I think of scenarios. I think of something might have happened at work or maybe how I handled something in a one-on-one -on -one situation. And really, how can I do better? Or how can I change? Or why are you upset over this? Or why is this thing bugging you? Or all right, Maria, you've had the same three things on your to-do list for the past 10 days. What are you going to do today to knock one or two of them off? And just because I think it's important, so something I do in my running and I do it when I pace too, is, is I chunk everything. So I never go out and run 50 miles. I go out and I run five miles 10 times. You know, so it's really, you're just looking at five miles. Okay, now we're going to do another five. And then at the end, you're like, oh my gosh, you got a five mile run to do. And I, and I do that with work too, is, is everything gets yeah. chunked and then everything's more manageable. So I just find there's just a lot of overlap between the physical aspect and the mental aspect of it. I, I, I love that so much. I mean, what you just described is why the majority of IT organizations have moved from waterfall to agile methodology. Like find these small user stories, these feature chunks right? And break them apart. And I can't make this fully functioning website that has these 72 things. Well, can you make one of the things? How about two of the things? Okay. Now you have a whole feature set. Now you have an Epic. Now you have a website that did the 72 things. And I think that's so interesting. And I recently have been, after having my son, the for me my second c-section was much more difficult in terms of like recovery like i was like i don't need medicine i don't need this oh. the first one was so easy and i was at home and my partner was in the other room and i screamed and he ran in he was like what's wrong and i was like i need to go get the pain medicine i had just screamed out in pain because i was like i'm tough i don't need this and it was very much like I started to be very content and like, well, I'm in my mid thirties, I guess this is just what my body is. And I think the kind of as you're calling out, it's, it also becomes very tied to your idea of like where your mind capacity can go to. And even if it's the littlest stuff, right? Like I do not take joy out of running. I really don't. However, I love biking and I love playing ultimate Frisbee. Um, and you have to run to play ultimate, yeah, right? You do. you do. And Josh and I will play it together and it's really fun. Our kids will come and sit on the sidelines. Oh. And this morning we have beautiful woods by us. I also grew up in Texas. Well, I know you didn't grow up there, but I grew up there. I spent a decent amount of time in Texas as hot as Hades. So I like really enjoy the the summers here and i've been taking what you said resonated with me in terms of i get to run 
I keep reminding myself, I get to move my body, whether it's just to go to a fun dance class or, you know, running to ultimate Frisbee and I miss that disc. Like, well, I'm 36 years old and I have two kids and at least I tried. Like, at least I'm out here still trying, still doing something social outside twice a week. And it's a really cool way to your point to start your day and really I think that's a good suggestion for everyone to really guard that time, whether you're a night workout person or a morning, it's really focusing your body and your mind together, which I think we undervalue quite a bit, especially nowadays. Yeah. I mean, days I don't run, I still get up early and I, you know, I'm fortunate. I live on the beach here and I just, I'll go listen to my podcast and walk on the beach. And I just, mm. there's something about fresh air on your skin. Yes. And even if it's drizzling, I'll put my slicker on and feeling like the little rain trickles on you. It's just, to me, it's that those senses of just moving, like moving your body. And mm-hmm. I, I, I've gotten into yoga, which I called sleep class for about 30 years of my life. And it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. But even that, like moving your body, like happy and stretchy and, oh, I just feel like that has also, and I do that at the end of the day. I can't run at the end of the day. It's too much energy for me. I don't ever fall asleep. But the yoga to close out the day is delicious. It really is. Especially if you sit a lot during the day, like I do. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I come out of there and I feel like the the cleanse of just, I, I do the hot yoga. And I don't even go to the hard class. I said, I don't know. I don't want to go to the hard die classes. I want to go to the, you sweat, but I, yeah, it's moderate. It's gentle on the body. And I just find it's, oh, it really is. It's like a cleanse and it's hard. And for me, it's so challenging still that I can't really think about anything else while I'm in there. And I think that's an important thing to do is to do something. And even probably where you find this with ultimate or for me, even running when it gets hard. I can't stick to one thought for too long. So you don't ruminate on things. You don't like worry. You more just process and you might put it back on the shelf, but at least you spent some time with it. And yeah, I think fresh air definitely helps with that and moving the body. Absolutely. And, and I know we're nearing time here, but I, I think that's, it's so cool to hear, you know, we, we covered a myriad of topics, but I think there's this theme also of, endurance, you kind of stated endurance, right? Like buckling up for the ride. I think another thing that's really admirable about your journey is your ability to know what you need and to trust your gut. And I think that's something that a lot of us, I know I struggle with it all the time. And I think it's whether it's going to do your postdoc in the military where people like, it was nice knowing you, doctor, or so. <laughs> and then saying, I need to do, I need to switch from running these ultra marathons to doing pacing because it brings me the joy out of it. To being like, I'm going to go do yoga and I'm going to take it. I don't need to be hardest level intensity at every single thing. This serves me at this point in my life. And I think that's a really cool thing too about kind of community and where you find it. I think the first the best way you can interact with community too is when you're really in tune with yourself and understanding what you need out of community and what over-influence you don't need. And I think you've really brought to the forefront in a very healthy and a very approachable way 
because I know whether you're seen as overweight, underweight, obese, too skinny, too fat, whatever it is, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about moving your body for the fucking joy of moving your body for the sake of feeling like you get the honor to, to exert your energy every day and just do something and accomplish something with your body and what that does to your minds. I just want to thank you for bringing that to this space and doing it in such a very positive way because I think it's something we need it said a million times over. <laughs> we need another episode because this is something else that I'm so passionate about, especially because there's so much noise around moving your body and there's mm. so much noise about what you're putting into your body now and mm. social media has amplified it to a, a, a unmanageable level. It's difficult to edit it and to know what's right and what's wrong. Absolutely. And yeah, and I, I it, it hurts me sometimes to see, you know, younger women especially with just things like just altered eating habits and just some the issues with body, body positivity because of the things that they see. And so it it is something that I know I say it in my career choice. I've always said, Maria, but what do you want? What works right. for you? Right. And I've done that again in training. But Maria, what do you want? What works for you? People now are still like, Maria, you can go win that race. Go win it. Come on, go. And I said, but I don't want to. Being on a podium right now is not what matters to me. Having 10 people cross the line with me that we endured right. that marathon together in the heat, that matters to me. And again, That's why so are you taking this supplement? Why are you taking that supplement? You have to do this. Don't eat carbs, intermittent fasting. That doesn't work for me. Someone asked me this weekend, do you fast? And what days do you fast? I said, no, I eat food. I get really hangry. <laughs> <laughs> I need to think and I need to process thoughts and I need to show up coherent and that requires food. Right. So I'm an eater. That's what I do. So yeah, I think whatever your convictions are, whether it's career, whether it's moving, whether it's eating, you have to do what works for you and try and just tune out the noise. It's definitely opinions and advisors and look at it. Totally. But know, knowing who you are and what works for you is so important. So I know we're, we're way over time, but this is so nice to talk to you. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I think if you're interested, we should definitely talk about another episode because I know that we had someone on last season who said once she stopped spending so much energy caring about her pant size, she was able to accomplish so much shit in the world. And she actually ran for assembly here in Madison. And it was just crazy to think about her just putting it that plainly. I don't think we can end this podcast on any better note other than trusting yourself and doing what's right for you. So thank you so much for spending time with us. And hopefully we will be chatting with you again in the future. Yes, I would love to. Absolutely.